Chapters 25 and 26 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 25. Three or four years after the birth of her daughter, Christina had had one more child. She had never been strong since she married, and she had a presentiment that she should not survive this last confinement. She accordingly wrote the following letter, which was to be given, as she endorsed upon it, to her sons when Ernest was sixteen years old. It reached him on his mother's death many years later, for it was the baby who died now, and not Christina. It was found among papers which she had repeatedly and carefully arranged, with the seal already broken. This, I am afraid, shows that Christina had read it and thought it too credible to be destroyed when the occasion that had called it forth had gone by. It is as follows. Battersby, March fifteenth, 1841 My two dear boys, when this is put into your hands, you will try to bring to mind the mother whom you lost in your childhood, and whom, I fear, you will almost have forgotten. You, Ernest, will remember her best, for you are past five years old, and the many, many times that she has taught you your prayers and hymns and sums, and told you your stories, and our happy Sunday evenings, will not quite have passed from your mind. And you, Joey, though only four, will perhaps recollect some of these things. My dear, dear boys, for the sake of that mother who loved you very dearly, and for the sake of your own happiness for ever and ever, attend to and try to remember, and from time to time read over again the last words she can ever speak to you. When I think about leaving you all, two things press heavily upon me. One, your father's sorrow, for you, my darlings, after missing me a little while, will soon forget your loss. The other, the everlasting welfare of my children. I know how long and deep the former will be, and I know that he will look to his children to be almost his only earthly comfort. You know, for I am certain that it will have been so how he has devoted his life to you, and taught you, and labored to lead you to all that is right and good. Oh, then, be sure that you are his comforts. Let him find you obedient, affectionate, and attentive to his wishes, upright, self-denying, and diligent. Let him never blush for or grieve over the sins and follies of those who owe him such a debt of gratitude, and whose first duty is to study his happiness. You have both of you a name which must not be disgraced, a father and a grandfather of whom to show yourselves worthy. Your respectability and well-doing in life rest mainly with yourselves, but far, far beyond earthly respectability and well-doing, and compared with which they are as nothing, your eternal happiness rests with yourselves. You know your duty but snares and temptations from without beset you, and the nearer you approach to manhood, the more strongly will you feel this. With God's help, with God's word, and with humble hearts you will stand in spite of everything. 
but should you leave off seeking in earnest for the first, and applying to the second, should you learn to trust in yourselves, or to the advice and example of too many around you, you will, you must fall. Oh, let God be true and every man a liar. He says you cannot serve him and mammon. He says that straight is the gate that leads to eternal life. Many there are who seek to widen it. They will tell you that such and such self-indulgences are but venial offenses, that this and that worldly compliance is excusable and even necessary. The thing cannot be, for in a hundred and a hundred places he tells you so. Look to your Bibles and seek there whether such counsel is true. And if not, oh, halt not between two opinions. If God is the Lord, follow him. Only be strong and of good courage, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember there is not in the Bible one law for the rich and one for the poor, one for the educated and one for the ignorant. To all there is but one thing needful. All are to be living to God and their fellow creatures, and not to themselves. All must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, must deny themselves, be pure and chaste and charitable in the fullest and widest sense. All forgetting those things that are behind, must press forward towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. And now I will add but two things more. Be true through life to each other. Love as only brothers should do. Strengthen, warn, encourage one another, and let who will be against you let each feel that in his brother he has a firm and faithful friend who will be so to the end. And, oh, be kind and watchful over your dear sister. Without mother or sister she will doubly need her brother's love and tenderness and confidence. I am certain she will seek them, and will love you and try to make you happy. Be sure, then, that you do not fail her, and remember— that were she to lose her father and remain unmarried, she would doubly need protectors. To you, then, I especially commend her. O oh, my three darling children, be true to each other, your father and your God. May he guide and bless you and grant that in a better and happier world I and mine may meet again. Your most affectionate mother, Christina Pontifex. From inquiries I have made, I have satisfied myself that most mothers write letters like this shortly before their confinements, and that fifty per cent keep them afterwards, as Christina did. Chapter 26 The foregoing letter shows how much greater was Christina's anxiety for the eternal than for the temporal welfare of her sons. One would have thought she had sowed enough of such religious wild oats by this time, but she had plenty still to sow. To me it seems that those who are happy in this world are better and more lovable people than those who are not, and that thus in the event of a resurrection and day of judgment they will be most likely to be deemed worthy of a heavenly mansion. 
perhaps a dim unconscious perception of this was the reason why christina was so anxious for theobald's earthly happiness or was it merely due to a conviction that his eternal welfare was so much a matter of course that it only remained to secure his earthly happiness he was to find his sons obedient affectionate attentive to his wishes self-denying and diligent a goodly string forsooth of all the virtues most convenient to parents he was never to have to blush for the follies of those who owned him such a debt of gratitude and whose first duty it was to study his happiness how like maternal solicitude is this solicitude for the most part lest the offspring should come to have wishes and feelings of its own which may occasion many difficulties fancied or real it is this that is at the bottom of the whole mischief but whether this last proposition is granted or no at any rate we observe that christina had a sufficiently keen appreciation of the duties of children towards their parents and felt the task of fulfilling them adequately to be so difficult that she was very doubtful how far ernest and joey would succeed in mastering it it was plain in fact that her supposed parting glance upon them was one of suspicion but there was no suspicion of theobald that he should have devoted his life to his children why this was such a mere platitude as almost to go without saying how let me ask was it possible that a child only a little past five years old trained in such an atmosphere of prayers and hymns and sums and happy sunday evenings to say nothing of daily repeated beatings over the said prayers and hymns etc about which our authoress is silent how was it possible that a lad so trained should grow up in any healthy or vigorous development even though in her own way his mother was undoubtedly very fond of him and sometimes told him stories can the eye of any reader fail to detect the coming wrath of god as about to descend upon the head of him who should be nurtured under the shadow of such a letter as the foregoing i have often thought that the church of rome does wisely in not allowing her priests to marry certainly it is a matter of common observation in england that the sons of clergymen are frequently unsatisfactory the explanation is very simple but it is so often lost sight of that i may perhaps be pardoned for giving it here the clergyman is expected to be a kind of human sunday things must not be done in him which are venial in the weekday classes he is paid for this business of leading a stricter life than other people it is his raison d'etre if his parishioners feel that he does this they approve of him for they look upon him as their own contribution towards what they deem a holy life this is why the clergyman is so often called a vicar he being the person whose vicarious goodness is to stand for that of those entrusted to his charge but his home is his castle as much as that of any other englishman and with him as with others unnatural tension in public is followed by exhaustion when tension is no longer necessary his children are the most defenceless things he can reach and it is on them in nine cases out of ten that he will relieve his mind 
a clergyman again can hardly ever allow himself to look facts fairly in the face. It is his profession to support one side. It is impossible, therefore, for him to make an unbiased examination of the other. We forget that every clergyman with a living or curacy is as much a paid advocate as the barrister who is trying to persuade a jury to acquit a prisoner. We should listen to him with the same suspense of judgment, the same full consideration of the arguments of the opposing counsel, as a judge does when he is trying a case. Unless we know these, and can state them in a way that our opponents would admit to be a fair representation of their views, we have no right to claim that we have formed an opinion at all. The misfortune is that, by the law of the land, one side only can be heard. Theobald and Christina were no exceptions to the general rule. When they came to Battersby, they had every desire to fulfill the duties of their position, and to devote themselves to the honor and glory of God. But it was Theobald's duty to see the honor and glory of God through the eyes of a church which had lived three hundred years without finding reason to change a single one of its opinions. I should doubt whether he ever got as far as doubting the wisdom of his church upon any single matter. His scent for possible mischief was tolerably keen. So was Christina's, and it is likely that if either of them detected in him or herself the first faint symptoms of a want of faith, they were nipped no less peremptorily in the bud than signs of self-will in earnest were, and I should imagine more successfully. Yet Theobald considered himself, and was generally considered to be, and indeed perhaps was, an exceptionally truthful person. Indeed, he was generally looked upon as an embodiment of all those virtues which make the poor respectable, and the rich respected. In the course of time, he and his wife became persuaded even to unconsciousness, that no one could even dwell under their roof without deep cause for thankfulness. Their children, their servants, their parishioners, must be fortunate, ipso facto, that they were theirs. There was no road to happiness here or hereafter, but the road that they had themselves travelled. No good people who did not think as they did upon every subject, and no reasonable person who had wants the gratification of which would be inconvenient to them. Theobald and Christina. This is how it came to pass that the children were white and puny. They were suffering from homesickness. They were starving through being overcrammed with the wrong things. Nature came down upon them, but she did not come down on Theobald and Christina. Why should she? They were not leading a starved existence. There are two classes of people in this world those who sin, and those who are sinned against. If a man must belong to either, he had better belong to the first, then to the second. End of chapter 26 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman